Amen. What a wonderful time of worship together. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture. Open to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. You'll find it on page 1191. As we continue in our study through the Gospel of Luke, the Chronicles of the Savior. And God has been so gracious to us through this study. We have seen so many times uh, the Lord's just prophetic uh, provision for us through this uh, book of the New Testament. And so, before I begin this morning, I'd like to pray as the choir makes their way in and we can uh, all dive into this passage before us this morning together in one accord. Let's pray. Father, we come before You now and Lord, we acknowledge this is Your Word, God. So Lord, I pray that, Father, You would protect me from my words and You would give me Your words. Thank You for speaking to me this week. Thank You for this amazing, challenging passage of Scripture, God. Now will You give us, as Your people, ears to hear and hearts to receive that we might receive this Word with gladness and joy and take it out from this place and shine it to the lost and dying world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to follow Jesus long before you will find yourself in a place where you are wondering, what am I doing here? How did I get into this circumstance? How did I get into this place in life? I didn't see this coming at all. And I know that uh, not only is that the testimony of my life, but many of you in here this morning find yourself in a very wonderful, great place in the grace of God, but you didn't see this coming. This really wasn't your plan. You didn't wake up one day and decide that you were going to turn your life around and give your heart to Christ and that he was going to revolutionize you and that everything was going to look different. It just sort of happened. God just consumed you with his love and he takes you on a journey. And the great thing about God is this, the unpredictable nature of following him. And I hope that as you read the Bible in your own personal time, and as you scan through the pages of Scripture, you would especially take note of the lives of the disciples and how they are portrayed in the Gospels and how utterly unpredictable their lives are. Imagine these 12 men who have given up everything that they know, all the familiarity of their lives. They've given over their their families and their occupations and all their possessions and they've followed this Jesus who, who claims to be the Son of God. And as they're going, He's doing some miraculous things and He's taking them in different places. But there are just things that defy logic. For example, two weeks ago, we see Jesus, as we sort of begun this section of Luke, we see Jesus with this enormous crowd, probably the largest crowd up until this point in His ministry. So much so that they pushed against him until he had to get on a boat to preach this message. And so here are the disciples. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking, here we go. He's out on the boat. We've got thousands of people. This is going to be good. He's about to cast the net and reel in all the fish. And we're going to have this earthly kingdom. And we're going to be big shots in the kingdom because we got in here first and we're closer to Jesus than anyone else. And so he gets on the boat and they're all ready. Here we go. And he says, now I'm going to tell you a parable about soils. First soil, you're out. Second soil, out. Third soil, out. And then if you happen to fit into the last category, then you can hear what I'm saying. 
Really? Jesus, that's what you got for us? And then the disciples said, Jesus, what does that mean? And then Jesus says, well, I speak in parables because I don't want everyone to understand because everyone doesn't have a heart to understand. They can't hear. See, some have ears but don't hear. Some have eyes but don't see. And so the vast majority of people just leave. And the disciples are like, well, that was great. That was great, Jesus. What a great sermon. Maybe you could do that again sometime. Like never. And Jesus says, okay, well, it's just an ordinary day. Hop in the boat with me. We're going to go across the lake. Okay, they get in the boat. Row, row, row. Hurricane. Water's coming in the boat. We're going to die. This isn't good. Wait a minute, where's Jesus? Oh, He's sleeping in the hurricane. Jesus, get up. We're about to die. This is critical. We're perishing. This is a disaster. You need to help us. Jesus gets up, speaks to the wind and the waves. Calm. I mean, are you getting the... This is an emotional roller coaster here if you're a disciple. Then you're... Whew, okay. So we had a near-death experience. Now it's calm. Let's just finish this little journey. Get to the other side. Hopefully there's a 7-Eleven. We can get a Slurpee. Everything's going to be fine. So let's just go and get over there. They pull up to the other side. And we have this text. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. The Bible says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes. This is the area of Gadara. This is an unbelieving area that's filled with Gentiles. It's a Gentile land where there's no believers, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out onto the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes. That's good. Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. It's getting better. So when Jesus, when, they, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him. And with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, this is Jesus, the unclean spirit, to come out of the man. For it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he answered, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Then they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine were feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And when they went out to see what had happened, they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the, de the demons had departed begged Jesus that he might be with him. But Jesus 
sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And so he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, you know, this would be a whole lot easier for us to talk about if this were another parable. In fact, it would make more sense, to be honest with you, if this was a parable. But I need you to understand that these poor disciples, they, they're having a rough day. Things aren't going really good for them at the moment. And I, I'm just imagining in my mind that they're so relieved they finally get to the shore and they probably look at each other and think, whew, man, I'm glad that's over. We're finally here. And about that time they look and here comes Mr. Legion, naked, bleeding, with chains hanging off of him running towards Jesus. And there's 12 men all crammed into the furthest corner of that rowboat as Jesus is up in the front going, oh, not again. Don't say we're going to perish, whatever you do. Just watch what Jesus does. And so you're thinking, what, what, are, you, what are you showing us here, Jesus? What is this about? Why this... Why this? Why this man? This is such an amazing text. If you really just think about what's going on here, I want us to just sort of start to dissect this passage of Scripture and see the different components and the different things that we can learn from looking at this encounter Jesus has with a demon-possessed man. The first thing I want us to see is the destructive nature of demons. You see, the Bible says in verse 27 that when Jesus stepped onto the land, he was met by this man. And this man had been possessed by demons for a long time, and he wasn't wearing any clothes. It was apparently very casual Sunday. Nor did he live in a house, but he lived in the tombs, out into the... He lived in the, the graveyard. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he immediately fell down before him with a loud voice and began to ask, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? The demons beg, I beg you, do not torment me. You know, when, when you read something like, like this, it, some of you in this room, maybe you're advanced in your education, maybe churches... Uh, is something new to you, or maybe you are just one of those people who, uh, you know, you just have a hard time grasping, getting hold of the supernatural accounts in the Bible, and you just think, this, this is silly. I mean, in 2011, demons? And here's, here's one thing that, that I hear a lot from the world in all of its sophistication and all of its uh, glorious technology. I hear things like, you know... Yes, I know demons are in the Bible, but that just represents the fact that people in biblical times had no understanding of illness and sickness. And so therefore, when people were sick, they just thought they were demon-possessed. Well, that's not true. Uh, and, and here's one great illustration of how I know that's not true. In Matthew chapter 4, there's a very interesting passage of Scripture. It starts in verse 23 where the Bible says, And Jesus went out to all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then the Bible goes on to say this, And they brought to Him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. Notice the delineation. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and, and, and those who were paralyzed. Now, 
Notice that the Bible delineates a difference between an illness and a demonic possession. That the Bible is very graphic and very uh, exact. And especially in the Gospel of Luke, you find Luke using very specific words to communicate things so that we would not misunderstand what the Bible is saying. The Bible understands the difference between disease and demons. And it is very clear. And as you read through the Gospels, I hope that God would enlighten your mind to that, that God understands. He knows. He he created us. He knows everything there is to know in this world. So let's talk for a moment about these demons. Demons, what are demons? Demons are fallen angels. You can find the account of Satan and his angels falling from grace with the Lord in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. We know that they have superior intellect. We see this in 2 Samuel 14, 20. We know that they were created by God. We know things about them like that they don't reproduce. They don't die. They never grow old. They're not omnipresent, yet they do move fast. They're not bound by the physical limitations that we are in moving about or or transportation because they're spirit. They also have superior power. You see that all through the gospel. You notice in 2 Kings 19, the Bible says that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians single-handedly. So the Bible has a lot to tell us about angels and their power. And so fallen angels are demons and possess this power. And they are only, and I repeat, only subject to a power that is greater than theirs. And that power is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, there's a, lots of, of illustrations of this. We need to be careful about um, how we think about demons as believers. It's, it's important to understand, or even as unbelievers, that, that demons are not in any way, shape, or form uh, frightened or taken back by our humanity. Remember the uh, account in Acts 19 of the sons of Sceva? And these men were trying to cast out demons. And the demons got frustrated with these men. If you read that, you'll find that the demons get aggravated with the men. And they say, who are you to these men? They say, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And then they trounced, they pounced on these men and overtook them and stripped all their clothes off them. Consistent with this demon-possessed man. In other words, men in their own power need to be very cautious when dealing with demons or demon possession. Demons hate God. That's one of the main attributes of demons. Therefore, demons desire when they are involved in a human life to dehumanize the people they're involved in. You see, they want to conceal the image of God that all of us were created to bear. And so that's why in verse 27, the latter part, you see he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. You see, because a demon wants to dehumanize those they possess. In Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 5, Mark tells the same account of Jesus and the disciples with this man. And Mark says, as always, day and night, that this man who was possessed by demons lived in the mountains and the tombs, and he cried out all night, cutting himself with stones. To which I would reply, if I were, were thinking like I know you're thinking, you would think, now wait a minute, don't just accept that at face value, think it through. Why would a demon not want to preserve the life in which he's possessing? Because that would make sense. 
Once a demon possesses a person, don't you think the demon would want to preserve them so that it had a vessel to continue to work in? But demons can't do that. You see, because Satan hates God. And people were created in God's image. And therefore, demons hate what God loves. And God loves people. And so demons, no matter what, cannot resist the urge. It is their nature to, as fallen angels, destroy whatever humanity they come in contact with. That is their goal. That is their intention. And so people begin to self-destruct from the inside out who are possessed by demons. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's real simple. That is their agenda. So I want you to first notice the destructive nature of demons. Secondly, I want us to see the dominating power of Christ. Look in verse 30. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Now, I've heard a lot of people say that this response, Legion, is bizarre. It's kind of strange. I mean, that's not a name. Why does he respond with Legion? To which I always think, that's not bizarre. If he would have said, Good afternoon, my name is Francis. That would be bizarre, would it not? But the fact that he responds with legion, well, legion is a battalion of Roman soldiers numbering up to 6,000, usually anywhere from two to 6,000 in number. And so this doesn't mean that there was exactly that many demons possessing this man, but it does mean that this man was infested with demons. And that since there was this multitude of demons, how else would the demons answer? That's the correct answer. Legion. Because there's many of us. And you know, maybe today, you're at a place in your life where you feel like you have so many issues and so many problems in your life that you, you don't even know where to begin. That if, that if I came up to you today and I said, you know, what, what are you struggling with? What, what's wrong in your life? You would want to reply to me, this legions of problems. And if I said to you, I'll help you. I'd like to help you solve one of the problems in your life. You might respond to me and say, Pastor, if you can only help me with one problem, don't bother. Because one problem won't even make a dent in what I'm facing. This man is infested with demons. And he had just been overrun. And he is in agony and misery. Verse 31 says, And then they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. This word abyss, this is abyssos. This is the Greek word for bottomless pit. This is where we find the, the fallen. There are fallen angels contained there now as I speak from Genesis chapter 6. 2 Peter 2, 4 tells us this, for, it did not, for God did not spare the angels who sinned. This is what he's referring to, those who sinned in Genesis 6. But he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains and darkness to be reserved for judgment. So they will never come out, but yet they will yet face judgment and then they will be cast in the right time into the lake of fire. Matthew, when he gives the account of this exact occurrence between Jesus and the demoniac, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, Matthew records this, and suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus? The demon says, You are the Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons understand. They understand that they're beat. They understand that they're defeated. They also understand that their time has not yet come. That their permanent cast into the lake of fire is not yet. But they know 
that it's coming. And they know that they cannot stand against the power of the Lord. And that's why they are begging and pleading. And then in verse 32, we see, Now a herd of swine was feeding there on the mountain. And so they begged him that he would permit them to enter the pigs. And he permitted them. Now this is where we have to stop a minute and really start to ask ourselves some questions because the story's getting kind of strange. It was already weird, but now it's really getting out there. First of all, why don't the demons just run away? Why did they come up running up to Jesus in the first place? I mean, why didn't, why didn't the boat pull up and they could just see the, the faint bare end of a man running off into the horizon? Sorry. Just trying to make it real, folks. Why didn't they just run away? They can't. You see, they can't do anything without permission from Jesus. I want you to understand that. That's why they begged Him. You see, the man in his humanity is in desperation and he... He longs to come to Jesus. In other words, he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't know. But this man has been tormented and is in agony. And he sees that something that could potentially be helped to him. And he's moving toward him. But the demons can't change course. The demons can't run away. The demons can't do anything apart from God's approval. They're not allowed. They're in the presence of the ultimate authority. They have power But their power is nothing, nothing in the presence of the dominating power of Christ. Notice the power that they have in verse 29. Remember that it said he was kept under guard and he was bound with chains and shackles, but he broke those. It's just that the power, you see, the power of the demons is enough to break the shackles and break the chains. And men fear and run. But when Jesus shows up, The demons are like putty in his hand, begging for mercy. Now, secondly, I want you to see what is the context of this as we're looking at this strange uh, uh, interaction with the pigs. What's the context here? Well, in the previous passage, we see that Jesus just demonstrated his ultimate authority and power over nature. And in the passage that follows this one, we'll see that Jesus will have an encounter with Jairus or Jairus. And he will raise up his son who is dead, his daughter who is dead. And there'll be a woman who touches the hem of his garment and is healed after years of sickness. Jesus will say later in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, he says, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we see that Jesus' power is on display in the Bible, in the Gospel of Luke, in these passages that we're looking at. And the dominating power of Christ is evident there as He encounters these demons. Now, watch what happens. Verse 33, Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place and into the lake and drowned. Some of you might remember... Not too long ago, uh, Brother Donnie dealt with this passage of Scripture and he said that the pigs committed suicide. And I didn't think that was funny because I thought it was the representation of deviled ham. So, I mean, because when they got to the edge, they did a swine dive into the bay of pigs. I mean, you can't study this all week and not think of crazy things like this. It's just there. 
Okay? Now, here's the question. Get back with me. Why would Jesus grant the demon's request? This is the thing that, that bothers me. Why would Jesus grant their request? They're demons. They're begging and pleading. And they say, send us into the swine. And Jesus does that. Why? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, it gave visual proof that the demons had been cast out. Remember, Jesus is making a point here. Jesus is in an unbelieving land. Jesus has His disciples who He's molding and preparing for the future. And so Jesus makes a visual proof that the demons have been cast out. If it weren't for this interaction with the swine, people could have said, well, I, I, don't, I don't think He was really demon-possessed. Maybe He was just having a bad couple years. We're not really sure. We don't know. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it just happened to be this or it happened to be that. But see, there was visual proof that the demons had left because you could see what the demons went into. So it took away the opportunity for them to deny what Jesus had done. Second reason Jesus grants their request is this. It also gave visual proof of the destroying purpose of demons because of what the demons do as soon as they get into the swine. In other words, think about this. Evil will always present itself as better. It's always going to come into our lives as this is where the fun is. This is where the life is. You know, sin is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. You don't have to worry about all that God stuff. You don't have to worry about all that church stuff. Why don't you just live your life? You only get one life. Live it up. People laugh and people joke and they say, oh, I can't wait to get to hell where all my friends are. Listen. These pigs represent exactly what demons do. They destroy whatever they get into. They will destroy a swine. They will destroy a man, a woman, a teenager. They will destroy you because that is their intention. And the Bible is giving us visual illustration of what they do. Jesus didn't send them off a cliff. That's what they do. Just like they had destroyed this man. See, the, the fact that wherever evil is present, in whatever area of your life you have secret sin, you will find death being sown into that relationship, that arena, that area of your life. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so where you sin, there will be death. If there is death in your marriage, why? It's a sign, it's a stench of sin. When there's death in your relationships with your children, there's sin. It may not be your sin, it may be their sin, but there's sin. You see, sin brings death. And so when you put your career over the Lord, you find your career begins to smell of death. You see, you can just apply this wherever it is in your life. There's sin, you'll find the markings of death. So we see first the destructive nature of demons, and then we see the dominating power of Christ. And thirdly, I want you to see the display of the presence of God. Look at verse 34. When those who had fed them, these are the men who fed the pigs and took care of them, they saw what had happened. And so they fled and told it to the city and to the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and, and came to Jesus. And they found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. I want you to just underline a couple of things in your Bible. Number one, in verse 34, underline saw. 
who fed them saw what had happened. So they saw that. In verse 35, underlined, and came to Jesus. They saw and they came to Jesus. That's important. And what did they find? They found a man who was different. And how was he different? Well, first of all, he was a man under authority. Notice what the Bible says. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. You see, here's how you're going to know this morning. You don't need me to sort all this out. You don't need me to say a certain thing a certain way so that you can understand where you are. I can make this real simple for you just by looking at this simple illustration right here. If you want to know this morning, if you are a child of God, just simply apply these two simple principles to your life. Number one, are you a man or a woman or a teenager under authority? In other words, who sits on the throne of your life? When you need to make a decision, who's in charge of making that decision? Do you just make the decision? Do you go with your with, with what you desire or what you think? Or do you actually open the Bible and say, God, what do I do here? You see, a believer, a Christian, is a person who is under authority. This man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, illustrating that he has been converted. He has been redeemed. He has been regenerated. Second principle you need to apply to your life. This man was different. He was different on the inside and he was different on the outside. Notice what the Bible says. And he was clothed on the outside and he was on his, he was in his right mind on the inside. You see, he was different than he used to be. This morning, if you're here, so many times people struggle and they say, well, pastor, I just don't know. I struggle with my salvation. I don't know if I'm born again or not. It's simple. Are you different? Are you different? Are you different on the inside? Are you different on the outside? Is there a moment in your life you can look back to and you can say, there was a change. I was going one way, now I'm going a different way. You see, I'm a man or a woman who's under authority and now I'm different. I'm different inside, I'm different outside. That doesn't mean all you legalists in here just turn that little switch off. That doesn't mean you have to dress a certain way or look a certain way, but here's what it does mean. If you're born again, people on the outside are going to be able to see it. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to, you're not going to act the same, talk the same, look the same. You will be different. So this man was redeemed and we know because he's under authority and he's not the same as he used to be internally or externally. Romans chapter 12 makes it real clear. Do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed. You see, on the outside, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Your life may reveal what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The Bible says that when you're born again, you are, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That all things are, the old is gone. Behold, all things are new. You see, there's something tangible about you that has changed. So listen, if the people closest to you are concerned about your spiritual condition, you ought to be too. Please. I used to sit in the pew next to a woman who knew I was lost and it broke her heart and it grieved her. And she wept over me and prayed for me and snuck up to the church and talked to the pastor about me behind my back. And she was, but she, she just waited and she prayed and she hoped and she didn't condemn me. She didn't beat on me, but she waited and trusted God and he saved me. Now listen, people around you, 
have insight. If they know you and they love you, they have insight into who you are. Listen to what they're saying. And if they're concerned, you should heed that warning. This isn't a game. This is eternity. Authority and transformation are the key illustrations of salvation. Those unleash the fruit of the Spirit that God desires for our lives to yield. Verse 36. Then also those who had seen... Again, you notice Luke wants us to know that they had seen this. They had seen it told to them by what means he had been demon-possessed. The man who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Interesting to me, I read this and I think to myself, they don't even say thank you? That this has been such a terrible place that no one could even come here because this crazy man was running around and they couldn't contain him, they couldn't control him. Jesus heals him in a moment and transforms him. There's not so much as even thank you. Thank you for what you did. They just reply, leave. We want you to get out of here. What is the illustration for us to understand? Jesus is merely drawing you back to the parable of the soils. He's saying when your heart is hard, it doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you hear. You can't receive. And their heart is hard. And so they come with their hard hearts and they see what's taking place and they understand something beyond their comprehension has happened and they send him away. And every single week, Jesus speaks to people here and they leave. And they get in their car and they drive away in the same way they've always been. May it not be so today. And let me show you something else about Jesus here. Notice what the Bible says at the end of verse 37. And he got into the boat and returned. Jesus left. Now, think, just, just that is an amazing statement. People come after all that he's done and they say, We see what you've done. We recognize what you've done, but we don't want you here. And he leaves. What does that tell you about our Savior? He doesn't want to be where he's not welcome. You see, Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. He can command nature. He can command demons. But when people say, no, we're not interested, he gets in the boat and leaves. That's why you, if you don't know Him today, can yet again get in your car and leave. Because He won't force Himself on you. He won't take you by storm. He will reveal His love to you. He will speak to you. He will show you that He loves you. And then you will decide by the soil of your heart how you will respond to Him and His goodness and His love. Their hearts were hard. They had seen. Look at verse 38. And then the man from whom the demons had departed begged Him that He might go with Him. So here's this man now redeemed anew. And he says, Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And so He went His way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for Him. Quickly, I just want you to know that 
There was no gospel in this area of Gadara. There were no believers that on the other side of the lake, there was a place filled with people who had been converted and touched by Jesus. And they were all running around proclaiming the gospel, but there was nobody here. And sometimes I hear people deal with this text and they say, well, what this text is teaching is that what we need to do is not go foreign places and share the gospel. But what Jesus is saying, we need to stay in our own place and share the gospel in our own town. That's not what Jesus is saying, because what did Jesus do went across the lake to where no one else had been and brought the gospel and saw a man saved and then raised him up and said now you do it in your land which is what we do in brazil which is what we do in moldova so the illustration here is twofold number one yes we're responsible to share the gospel and shine the light in our own communities but number two we must get in the boat and we must travel far and we must go where we don't know we must go where it's scary we must go where it's unpredictable we must go where people don't look like us and talk like us and act like us. We must go. Even I will go places where you are afraid, but I will go because Jesus Christ has sent me and he bought me and redeemed me and he owns me. And I'm a man under authority. And if Jesus says, go, I will go. And that's what this text illustrates. But that's not all. Finally, this. There's a deliberate nature to Jesus, and then I'm done. Go back to verse 26. We skipped that. You know I don't skip verses. How come nobody stood up and shouted? Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Period. You should put a giant star there. You should say, this is a glorious verse. This is an unbelievable verse. People think, well, this doesn't mean anything. The good stuff is yet to come. No, this is the key. This is the amazing part of the whole story that you are about to see an encounter with a man who lived in a Gentile land where there was no believers. He lived among the dead. The Jews couldn't be around dead. That made them ceremonial unclean. They couldn't be around pigs or pork because that was unheard of. That was unclean. You couldn't be naked. You couldn't be bloody. Everything about this man was unclean. He was a reject. He couldn't come within a thousand miles of a synagogue. He wasn't allowed. He was the most rejected, the most unclean, the most ridiculously unfit person to come into the presence of God that any any Jewish person could ever think of. And Jesus got in the boat and he went across the lake through a hurricane to get to him. Don't come in here this morning and say you're too far from God. You've done too much. Your past is too bad. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin I carried. Listen, you have not gone too far. Jesus Christ will go wherever he has to go. He'll do whatever he has to do to prove to you that he loves you. He has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He redeemed this man who was un clean in every way, unfit in every way. And what did he do? He raised him up and said, you have a job to do. You belong in my kingdom. You're going to go out and be my spokesman. You're going to tell the world about the love that I shared with you. You're not a reject. On the day one, day one, Jesus ordains him as a missionary. Go. I mean, you're not one of many. You're not, you're not going to go and be trained by 10 other people. You're alone. This is the greatest thing in the world. Jesus goes specifically, intentionally, all the way across the lake to meet the last person anyone in this room would ever think he would meet. Listen, good soil doesn't always lie where we think it ought to lie. 
people that God has big plans for don't always look like people we think they ought to look like. We shouldn't be surprised. Shame on us that we are. Does not the Bible say in Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what? That which is lost. That's what we came for. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. Demon-possessed people. People who were unclean, unacceptable, didn't smell right, didn't look like they should. People that when you walk by, you just hope they don't stop you. Hope you don't sit next to them. Hope you don't have to smell them. That's who Jesus went across the lake to get to. But that's not the best part. The best part is 1 Corinthians 6. Because it's the part about us. The cleaned up people who are under authority and changed. It's the reminder we need to hear. Where Paul says to this church filled with carnality. And in this church where there are believers scattered amongst unbelievers. And there's all sorts of crazy things going on. And so you've got just like a church today where you've got people here who clearly don't believe in God, don't want to do anything with God, just sit there with a hard heart and receive. And then you've got other people who are so in love with Jesus Christ they can't contain themselves, all mixed into one. And here's what Paul says to him. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It won't be fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous people or drunkards or revilers or extortioners. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But the good news is this. As were some of you. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are. Because we've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've been forgiven. But you were sanctified, Paul says. You were justified, Paul says. And by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, now you've been redeemed. You're new. So here's what you do. Raise up your sleeves today. Roll them up. And just see. Look, look. Be reminded of the scars on your arms from where you used to be shackled. From where you used to cut yourself with stones. From where you used to be a wreck in your old life. Praise God for the reminders in our life of what we used to be to encourage us this morning about what we are. People of God, rise up and celebrate. You're not that anymore. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been set free. You're part of His kingdom. He's got a plan for you. A purpose for you. You belong to Him. On the first day, on the first day you became a Christian, Jesus said, I got a job for you. I got a job for you. It's a mysterious God that we serve. And so let me give you some parting advice. Don't start trying to predict where God's going to take you. Just grab a hold and ride. Because you may be in a boat right now just coming off a storm and you may be thinking that this peace of calm is going to last a while but what you don't know is there's an encounter around the next bend that is going to blow your mind and you're going to think what in the world are those pigs doing jumping off of that mountain and Jesus is saying I just want you to see don't try to predict where I'm taking you because good soil is where I work It's where I do my 
glorious, transforming work. So if you're here this morning, please, please hear me. Are you under authority? Is God sitting on the throne of your life? Are you changed? Are you changed on the inside in such a way that people can see that on the outside? Because the game that you're playing otherwise is not really a game at all. I implore you because I've been you and I love you. Receive Jesus today. And if you're His son or His daughter, roll up your sleeves and be reminded of the scars of the shackles you once wore. You're free now. The chains are gone. You've been set free. Now hang on because the ride is going to be amazing. Let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes.